I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bayer. We address some of the world's most pressing global challenges and continue to develop new solutions. As the population continues to grow and its age increases, we will need better medicines and high-quality food in sufficient quantities. To learn more, visit www.bayer.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. This week we have another special episode in our series, EU Confidential Goes Green. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Let's put aside all of this Brexit uncertainty as we hurtle towards yet another summit that's going to deal with Brexit and yet another possible Brexit date. In this episode, we're going to use highlights from a debate Politico conducted Tuesday night in Brussels. It was called The Great Debate on Climate. We had representatives of six of the eight parties in the European Parliament, and it was a very interesting discussion. What you're about to hear is highlights of about two-thirds of that debate. Now, it's important that you understand who you're listening to. So I'm going to introduce the candidates in the order in which you hear them speaking first. First up is Joe Leinen. He's a German Social Democrat from the Socialists and Democrats. After him is Mark Demesmarke, He's from Belgium's New Flemish Alliance, and in the European Parliament, his group is the European Conservatives and Reformists. Third is Frederick Federley. He's from the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats in Europe and Sweden's Centre Party. Then there's Marissa Matias. She's from the Green Left Group in the European Parliament and from Portugal's Left Bloc. Then there's Thomas Veitz. He's from the European Greens Free Alliance in the Parliament, and his party is the Austrian Greens. And finally, from the biggest party in Parliament, Adina Valeon. She's the European People's Party and a Romanian Liberal Party member. Let's get into the debate. Before we hear from the candidates, a jargon warning. They frequently refer to COP. COP is the United Nations Conference of Parties, and it's the biggest global climate conference each year. I will do a hands-up question to begin with. Thousands of school students are striking each week in hundreds of cities around the world to demand that politicians, like each of you, do more to protect their future. Can you raise your hands if you support their strikes for the climate? Four and a half or five, I'll give it. Each of the candidates, except for the European Conservatives and Reformists, stated that they support the strike. Now the hard part. Supporting the students is an admission that the current policy has failed. So do you accept until now that we have failed those students? Okay, that was a hands up from everyone. Joe, you get to explain in detail now. Definitely we are not doing enough. We are too slow. 
and we waited for this COP agreements and had an excuse that the others are not doing enough. So the blame game around the world, I think that's finished. We are now confronted with uh, the newest uh, science uh, findings and I think uh, Europe must go its own way. And the transformation is huge, uh, no doubt. Um, my political group looks for just transition. We have seen the Gilets jaunes in France. Uh, I had a steelworkers family on the Sunday evening back home, and the father was saying, how can I buy an electric car? I have not the money. So there's a lot of additional policies necessary, social policies, reorienting the financial sector, not uh, subventioning what we don't want, but uh, privileging what we want. And in this case, I think we must make a big jump in the next years, definitely in the decisive next decade. Mark, <clears throat> as the person who wasn't supporting the strikers, uh, tell us why you don't think we failed these students. Oh, a little bit of nuance. I don't support striking or I don't support skipping classes. Mm -hmm. But of course, I admire their dedication and I admire their engagement for the climate. What I'm a bit afraid of is the fatalistic and the, the doomsday mentality that you sometimes find part of this movement. Because we don't need to be fatalistic. We need to be optimistic and we need innovation and we can find innovation and human creativity to tackle the problem in a very practical way and to go forward. But of course I understand their frustration. Now we have been voting the last term, we have been voting a package on climate, on energy, and now is the time to implement this, of course. It's time for the member states to really implement this. And this is what we should do in the future, in the first place, is to see that we meet the targets that we have set. We have been debating on the targets in 2014, we have set them, we have to meet them. Not setting new targets which are not feasible, but meeting the targets that we promised to meet, and that will make a difference. Frederick. Uh, back to your question, I think it's quite clear that we have been letting them down. They're calling for action and they're calling for action now. I think that this needs to be treated in a very, very serious way where we also make sure, I think Mark had a, quite a few points, if we go into distress and we think that everything is lost, why will we ever do something? It will cause that kind of reaction. I'm convinced that one of the biggest keys to actually tackle this is the European Union and the legislation that we have at hand. The problem is it's still too weak and it has to be amended during the next mandate. 2023 will be a crucial year for European climate legislation. But it's also crucial that we just don't run on the targets. It's so easy, especially for us in this panel, to say, I want 50%, I want 70%, I want 80%. What it all comes down to is the proper work that we are doing on legislation and the details. If we get the legislation right, we will get more bang for the buck. If we get it wrong, we won't even be able to reach the targets. So the debate on targets, that's an easy debate. The more difficult one is where do we put the investments? How do we raise the money to do this? And that is totally possible to do, but we have to make sure that we spend every euro in the best way to get the most climate advantage and not just to raise the biggest possible target. Marissa. Yes, I think that these claims from the young people are more than fair. They don't see their future in the sense that we have lived our lives. So they are more than fair. I don't think that we should be in difficulties by assuming that we did not do enough till now and we need to do more. And honestly, my problem is that we always agree about climate change. We always agree about targets, but we don't make them binding. If they are not binding, they are just a kind of expression of a will, but they will never get real. And that's what the young people see on us, which is some 
group of people who says a lot of things which need to be done, but at the end we don't put in the concrete domains. So we need to introduce climate change policies against climate change in all the political domains and not only a general declaration about it. It has to do with the public investments for sure. It has to do with energy. It has to do with transport and mobility. It has to do with the resources. It has to do with redistribution. It has to do with all the domains. We don't want to destroy the economy. We don't want to destroy the society. But I think it's clear that if we continue like this and finding excuses is the, the young people will be right sooner than later. And so we, we need to add. That's the issue. We know how to do, we do it. It's not just proclaim that we are going to do it. Thomas. Well, it's always a question of perspective. If you see the global situation, Europe is the most progressive. The European Parliament is the most progressive within Europe when it comes to tackling climate change. But then, in fact, again, look at the concrete actions. We were talking about cohesion funds just lately. We had the votes in the Parliament in Strasbourg. And what, what have we voted? Well, you can still use the money to build roads. Yeah? It's roads, not railways, roads. Yeah? So we're still investing into the wrong direction. And sure, I mean, I can tell the youngsters, look, I I mean, we're the most progressives of the world, but then they tell me, look, our CO2 emissions are rising year by year, and they reach another maximum every single year. So stop talking, go into action. And I'm very much with my colleague, yeah, we have to invest into the right directions, and Europe can. I mean, which other region of the world could? We're the richest region of the world, and we're very influential on the world markets, also world trade, and we could actually substantially influence also trade policies if we demand fair and also climate just uh, international trading systems, we could also have an influence to other regions of the world. Adina, the final word for you on this question. I encourage young people to express themselves in uh, problems of the society. We need that. By the other hand, I uh, disagree that we failed. And I'm going to give an example to you and to them. Through legislation and through action, we managed to, in 20 years, from 1995 to 2015, to reduce the emissions in the new cars with 36%, and that is something. Of course, there's diesel. new legislation in place now with tougher targets, so we'll have another reduction, so on and so forth. So we have results. We put a framework in place. We, it was a lot of work, and we... I think it is something good, but we need to focus on the implementation. And there is a certain hypocrisy at the level of the member states who are maybe represented in a way in the European Parliament, but when they go home, they do not actually implement the legislation. And we had, for example, the 550 grams CO2 initiative, and I didn't see much support. And we have member states who are completely burning coal, and we just know that 68% of the emissions in the power sector are coming from coal. So mm. we have to stop to be hypocrite. Okay. For the next question now, Michel Barnier, who may well end up as the European Commission president, said that climate change doesn't stop at borders, that green Europe must be a priority, and that we need to pay for carbon emissions in all sectors and massively invest in technologies such as hydrogen and batteries to avoid falling behind China and the US in the development of those technologies. This amounts to a Green New Deal for Europe. So I want to know, do you support such a Green New Deal? And if you want a different type of Green New Deal, tell us what that is. Mark, you get to go first. Obviously, investing in research and development is the best that we can do. We can set high targets and higher targets again, but then we will staring at our own navel. 
with innovation, with new technologies that we can develop in Europe, we can export this technology to the rest of the world. Don't forget that the rest of the world will grow. It will grow substantially. I was in Nigeria for an election observation. 180 million will be 400 million by the end of 2050. And then I'm speaking of Nigeria alone, the third most dense populated country in the world will be. They will all need energy and they will develop. So we have to develop new technologies so that they can do it in a sustainable way, in an affordable way, because we don't want to deny them their development. So indeed, we have to invest massively. We have to accelerate there in research and development because it will come from there, not from anything else. And we have to put this really into practice. Frederick. A Green New Deal is a good way of tackling the grandfather syndrome, uh, which is striking all through the European Union. The grandfather is sitting with his pipe on the porch in the sundown, and he is so pleased with all the Olympic gold, silver and bronze medals he got in the 50s, 60s, 80s, 90s, and then there were no more. We can look at supercomputing, we can look at these new technologies racing, where we actually are falling behind. China is beating European car manufacturers on electrical cars because we have been protecting them in the wrong way. We need to be on the forefront making sure that the Green New Deal becomes proper investments in new technology, innovation and industry all through Europe. There is a lot of money to gain from this sector. So the ones who are only into the market and do not really care for the environment, look where the money is going and where it will go in the future. And it will go in a clearly green direction. If you want to be a smart investor, if you want people to ask for your products, your car, whatever it might be, make sure you go into the green sector. So what was just a few years ago seen as only a cost in the national budget or your private budget taking environmental responsibility will actually be the thing that is putting the gold on your plate, not in the bad way with extra bureaucracy on national level implementation of European legislation, but actually giving us new jobs, new money and a new future for Europe. Martha. I think we have the capacity to totally reframe the model of society without neither kill the economy nor the society itself. But we need to have the will to change. So we need to have investment, but real investment for 100% in renewable energy society, because that has to be our target. We cannot stay in the middle, otherwise we'll not get to the target. We need to have a proper investment plan and redefinition of agriculture model and the food that we put in our places and the consumers' redistribution circuits that we have. And we need to take it into account. So, as I said, we have already the answers. Of course, science and technology are fundamental. But we cannot excuse the fact of the things we still don't know today in order to not act on those things we already know. So science and technology are key, are fundamental for any kind of development, but we already know a lot. Another thing, and the last topic, is that we are always listening people saying, okay, we do, we do, we do, but member states then don't implement. I'm sorry, we didn't do enough. We don't have a proper policy at European level for fighting climate change. Thomas. Well, I'm open for innovation, but the good message is we have the technologies to skip fossil fuels. They're there, they're in place, they're working. Yeah, we just need to invest into them and build a new future. And I mean, it's ridiculous that planes and kerosene is not properly taxed. It's ridiculous that ships still drive around with the most polluting diesel you can ever have on the globe. Yeah, this is ridiculous. I mean, I can get a plane ticket to any city in Europe for 100 euros, but if I take a one-way single train from Vienna 
Vienna to Brussels, it costs me 250. So I'm punished if I'm doing the right thing, and I'm granted if I do the wrong thing, taking a plane. This must end. So yes, a CO2 tax must be put in place just to show the real costs of the life we live, and also to kind of direct consumers to take the right choice, or at least grant them uh, positively to take the right choice. Yeah? I mean, electricity and batteries, if we change to electric cars, and if we fuel them with electricity that has been produced in coal power plants in Germany, as an example, we haven't won anything. Then it makes more sense to take the diesel directly because you have a better revenue of energy output to what you put in. Still on the Green New Deal, Adina. I support the says of uh, Michel Barnier, of course. <laughs> I thought at the beginning that you, you are going to comment on uh, Brexit. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, Please, well, no, no we Brexit. Are <laughs> <laughs> we are actually in a new Green Deal. We are in it. The society expects us to act, and I think it's very acceptable for the society to change. But in order to make it a success, it has to be an economic success for the world to embrace it in the markets, or else it will be just uh, something, a rubber stamp on a pile of legislation we are producing, but in reality, the electric cars are having only 2% take up in the market. They are out there, and if they are not subsidized by governments, then actually the buyers are not spending the money on electrical cars. So what can we propose to people? Take an expensive train or buy an expensive car? We have to let things evolve in their way. And just a word about green infrastructure. I think if we want to do something concrete, for example, we can imagine to have a trans-European network of green investments so that we can follow, see and follow projects which are green in all the areas. The final word on the Green New Deal is yours, Joe Leinen. Yeah, climate protection needs a new social contract. This transformation affects uh, merely all aspects of society and economy and call it a new Green Deal. That's, let's say, the target uh, to have really everybody on board. And it is first place an environmental question, but is as well an economic and social question. And I'm chairing the China delegation in the parliament, so I can only confirm what was mentioned here, that we are in the middle of a race for the new technologies. And China has a long-term plan. They know exactly what they want. They know exactly what they do. And we are lacking behind. And it's a shame that we are not able to produce our own batteries. And the solar cells are as well in China. But there are many more climate-friendly technologies that have to be developed and brought in the market. And Europe has everything we need. So I think the new framework that we are building in taxonomy, the new financial system, and uh, the new legislation that we have done, I hope will uh, raise a lot of investments and innovations in the next years. Now, time for another round of quick questions. So the preface is that the EU and Europeans are sometimes complacent about their climate achievements, even though with slow population growth and economic growth, the targets are not always that hard to meet. So my quick question to each of you is, name one thing that you've sacrificed in the last month to assist the climate. Frederick, my you get family. to go first. My family. Uh, explain. Well, uh, being, being here doing uh, the legislative work, that means that we're taking the job seriously. I've been working on the ETS, I've been working on renewable energy and several other uh, environmental and climate files. That means also giving up on my family to be here and do the proper work. Marissa. I think we all sacrifice our families, <laughs> but 
I sacrifice, for instance, my comfort, but I discovered that walking is re really comfortable. So I walk a lot uh, instead Great. of what I was doing before. Good. Thomas, your turn. I take the night train instead of the planes. I eat basically organic. I eat very little meat. I'm not a vegetarian or vegan, but I eat very little meat. I also contribute through that. So I try to live what I'm politically promoting. Now it's competitive. He sacrificed two <laughs> things. Adina. <laughs> what can I say? I took plastic out of uh, the house, more or less, uh, because we are trying to uh, be sustainable. I, I'm not, I want I'm it not, on the record. I'm not Adina drinking the water a from your water bottle, bottle because it's plastic yes. bottle. Yes, sure. <laughs> I have a hardship to throw things away. And in fact, in my house, we repair. Whether it's the TV, whether it's the washing machine, whether it's other things, we have a second use and try to recycle as much as possible. And finally, Mark. I live in Belgium. I commute by train instead of by car, as I used to do. And a lot of other things, including spending a lot of time in nature, in planting trees. I've spent some weekends with some environmental groups, planting new forests uh, in my own home, hometown. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like to do, and it's healthy. Now... Because of climate consequences, is it morally wrong to take monthly holiday flights? Hands up if you agree. We've got Marissa, Joe, and Thomas saying it is morally wrong. That's fine. There's no pressure. Second question. Is it morally wrong to own a car? So we've got <laughs> Marissa, yes, and five no's. And finally, is it morally wrong to eat meat? It depends which kind of meat, you know? I breed <laughs> my own meat. I breed my own meat. There is no pressure. There is no pressure. Yeah. Okay, we, we've got Marissa. I, I think Marissa's trying to say she eats meat, but she knows it's morally wrong. <laughs> okay, thank you for playing along with that. The debate will continue after this message. A message from Bayer. Advancing life. That's what we at Bayer are all about. As a leading life science company, we are contributing to finding solutions to some of the major challenges of our time through our innovations. We also meet our responsibility to protect the environment in many different ways. We are continuously working to reduce the environmental impact of our business activities and develop product solutions that benefit the environment. For example, we offer innovative and cutting-edge digital farming technologies that help farmers use resources more efficiently. From sensors to satellites to smart irrigation systems, digital technologies enabling farmers to take advantage of the data at their fingertips to build successful farms and make agriculture more sustainable. To learn more, visit www.buyer.com. Just before we get back to the debate, here's a quick word about a special event. This weekend, EU Confidential goes to London and you can see and hear the team in action. We're live on stage this Sunday, April 7th from 2.30 to 3.30pm at the Podcast Live Festival. Our special guest will be Emily Thornbury, the UK Shadow Foreign Secretary. You can buy tickets to our show for £12 or an all-day ticket for £30 to see up to a dozen of your favourite political podcasts. Just go to the website, podcastlive.com. Now, let's get back to the big climate debate. We can get on to a deeper question now. The question is around the punishments for people who break the rules. Germany is set to miss nearly all of its 2020 climate targets, despite a massive investment program, particularly in renewable energy. When countries miss their budget target, Germany usually wants them fined. So shouldn't German companies and the German government be fined for failing to meet climate targets and cheating environmental standards tests, as we saw with Dieselgate? 
Thomas, you get to go first. Yeah, definitely, yes, because climate change is not just an environmental threat, it is also an economical threat. So it's an economical topic. Countries that are not reaching their climate targets should definitely be punished by money because money rules the world. And this is the language that governments understand. We have next Adina. Well, that's why I'm referring to implementation. And we need to understand what is exactly going on. We need to understand why it's not implemented. Because I don't think the German government is a bad government and they don't want to implement or to reach their standards. But there are reasons behind that. And we need to have a very good analysis to understand if our legislation is actually realistic or what, where we can fine-tune things so that in the end will be successful. Just at the last COP, we decided on the rules of reporting so that we will know in New York we can take stock of who is doing what exactly. Or else everyone can pretend, I don't know what, but in reality, maybe not being able to comply with the targets. Joe. Indeed. Yeah, the resident the, German on the panel. I will not excuse my country who was a frontrunner. Then we decided to step out of nuclear. What was left besides the renewables was our coal and the phasing down and the phasing out is decided. And I think the cabinet uh, government in Berlin has understood that now we have to speed up. Yeah, we have uh, the biggest base on industry, 24 5% is industry in Germany. That needs, of course, innovation and breakthrough. And let's hope that we get better because we must get better. Thank you. Mark. Yes, well, member states have to take their responsibility. If they, have, if they make a commitment, they should meet the targets and they have to make the right decisions. Should they be punished? I believe in incentivizing rather than really punishing. But of course it's about making the right decisions and to have an open mind also to all solutions uh, on the table and to all technologies on the table. If you phase out nuclear, which is the most CO2 neutral technology that we have today, to replace fossil fuels, that is a fact. If you phase them out, then you have to realize that replacing them by renewables means that you will have to take to account that these renewables are not always reliable and that you will need a backup. And what is the backup? That's fossil fuels. My plea is for an open mind, also for all technologies, where also new evolutions and technologies are being prepared. Frederick. What you're basically doing with your question is putting the thumb in the eyes of every lawmaker because we're quite happy to put forward legislation. We're happy when we got a deal, we're passing plastics or whatever it might be. Then at the end of the day, did it make any difference? And I think this is one of the institutional problems that Europe has. If European Union is going to be effective and if we're going to be successful, there has to be consequences of not abiding both international treaties and our own targets and legislation. If we do not comply with what we, in consent, decided, we will have to be fined. Otherwise, there is no meaning following our own legislations and proposals. And Marissa, finally. I, I'm alone here. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think sanctions are a good way. Mm -hmm. We cannot buy everything, everything, you know. And by putting the debate always on sanctions is to say those countries who have the money, which have the money, they can keep 
doing what they do. They can just still do whatever they do, but we can call it green because they pay a sanction at the end. They have the resources to do so. So I don't think so. I think when we talk about a structural change in our society, it means also that we cannot buy everything. And we cannot buy pollution. We cannot buy emissions. We, can, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should not be able to buy the destruction of the planet. So if our worth, our commitment to ourselves is not enough, what are we doing here together? If we, we don't have the capacity to say, okay, this legislation is binding, so we need to accomplish that, what are we doing? So I, I do not support that, because that's a way of giving an advantage for those which can pay to keep doing the same shitty things. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I don't agree. Very open-minded on the language here at Politico. I have a oh, confession to make to you all. I skipped a question, which was Marissa's chance to go first. So I'll go back to that one now. And the question topic is China. Basically, what's the point without China? So what is your strategy to convince China to come on board with serious emission reductions, clean technologies, etc., while also not giving Europe a free pass? Marissa, you get to go first. That's a long story, isn't it? Because a few years ago, European Union countries did not even hesitate just removing the units of production, our factories, to China and to other countries, not even paying attention to the fact that they don't pay enough salaries, that there's no workers' rights which are guaranteed, or health insurance, whatever, nothing. So at some point, we didn't even look to the fact that we were destroying our economy by moving all the producers to China and other countries. Now, because of competition issues, we are really afraid. Honestly, I think one of the problems was that we have adopted the Chinese model and other models to the European Union by not giving proper conditions to people to work, to live, to have dignity, to have quality of life. And now we ask them to do the same. I think that should be a global compromise, to be honest. But the European Union has to give the example first. And by giving the example and saying we do not allow certain types of products which do not correspond to certain types or models of production. I think we should have this kind of moral patterns if you want to, and we should be proud of it. We should not be ashamed. We should be proud of it. Thank you. Uh, Thomas. First of all, I mean, we here in the so-called West, we were building our economical development and our richness that we have, our wealth. We were building it on using fossil fuels and huge amounts of it. And we know that I think 80% of all the pollution that we have set into the atmosphere came from the so-called Western states. So I think we should be cautious on now lecturing, developing or upcoming states in how they should organize themselves. And, and also uh, China did a good job on, on tackling poverty. And I I don't think European economy is destroyed at all. We're still the richest region of the world and we have a very strong and very functioning economy here. What I think is that Europe should start to apply the same standards that we apply to European farmers, to European industry. We should apply the same standards to imports of products and we should realize that we're externalizing big parts of our CO2 emissions, factories in China, soy plantations in Brazil, and these CO2 emissions are not counted on our budget but in a way, parts of that should. So let's do our homeworks first before we lecture half of the world. Adina. Well, I'm not an expert on China topic, as is Joe, who is chairing the delegation with China, so he has an advantage here. Of He's course, we the met, chair of the Environment I met, Committee. I met them, uh, I met them uh, at, at the COPs. I didn't believe them truly, what they are saying they are doing. 
I think the problem remains how we can convince the rest of the world to follow our steps and take action, China or others. And I think by showing that the economic growth and the profit, it's decoupled by emissions. So we can reduce emissions and still be profitable, and then they will follow. I don't think, on the contrary, they will be so convinced. Of course, trade itself has its possible leverages. It's not fair that they can export or import on our market products which are produced with a high amount of emissions, while we are putting a lot of pressure on the competitiveness of our industry Mm -hmm. producing the same stuff. So I think we can act here in a way, convincing too. Sure. China is definitely a partner for the European Union for climate protection. The Communist Party itself has recognized that for its own survival, reduction of emissions is a key question. And one of the five principles from the last Communist Party conference was eco-civilization. So they do a lot, that's good, but they still have this narrative that they are a developing country. And I think from Kyoto to Paris, there is a big change. In Kyoto, we had a common but differentiated responsibility. And China is still claiming this principle that they have to do less. And now they are well power, they are by and large developed. And I think when they are still building 600 coal power stations in the planning, it's not on. I mean, they have to shift as well. And we have to take care if we do now the fourth round of emission trading, where it really costs money and it is harder for our industry, that then products coming to our market uh, somehow get monitored, whether our partners do the same. Otherwise, we need a border adjustment by an environmental levy. The border tax. Mark. Well, as I said in the beginning, we need partners around the world, not only China, but, but, but other regions in the world which are developing and I can't stress enough we will use a lot and we will need a lot of energy in the decades to come. The last report of the International Energy Agency showed that China has increased its use of coal by 5.3% last year. 5.3% extra coal. So what are we talking about here? This is disastrous of course for the climate. A lot can be done in our trade negotiations, of course, and we have to do that with all the parties we trade with. We have to raise the concerns there and to include it into these agreements. And on the other hand, of course, China has said, we don't want your plastic waste anymore. Take care of it yourself. So the export of our plastic waste to China has stopped, which is good, because that will incentivize our own industries to tackle this plastic waste, to reuse or to recycle it. We've just voted in a single-use plastic legislation, which is a boost for more circular plastic mm-hmm. uh, economy, and that's the way to go. We got it. Time's Le- up. Frederick. <coughs> I think there are several parts to this. One is on reciprocity. How do we use our own legislation and when we do import from other countries, are we holding them to the same standard as we hold our own companies and producers or farmers or what it might be? We actually, after a tough fight with the guys from the council over there on veterinary medicine package, uh, said that we, we cannot continue to import meat from other countries 
which are using antibiotics in a way that is not legal in the European Union with the new package that comes into force 2021. And if we're starting to use reciprocity, it could be a really, really powerful tool, especially since we are working now together with Japan in the biggest free trade agreement. We're working together with Canada. At one day, Trump will be gone and, and there will be proper talks with a great country again, United States. We could set the global standards and China can then choose to be in that or be outside it. And outside that will be being outside the economy. So here we actually can use the free trade agreements, our positive laws, which we are passing all the time, to set a global standards, which actually can be a great help in this sense and in other sense. And either China do it by their own will, or we will force them financially. Mm -hmm. Officially, we should end, but I'm going to squeeze in one more question, because I think it would be nice to ask a specific question to each of you. I'll start with you, Adina. Manfred Weber, your candidate in the EPP for European Commission President, doesn't say much about climate. Can you offer us some proof that he takes the issue seriously? That's accordingly to political. I wouldn't say it's completely true. Hit me with the proof. Hit me I with wouldn't the proof. say it's completely true because uh, the work of our group was tremendous on this. We took, we pick up on all the subjects. Mm. We were very constructive. But what he says is this has to be seen together with the competitiveness of the economy mm -hmm. and uh, with the creation of jobs. So that's what he says. It's Fair not enough. true. Joe, given those concerns about Mr. Weber that some people have, isn't climate the way to get the keys to the Berlimont for Franz Timmermans? What can you offer Alde, the Greens, to cut a deal to get Franz in instead of Manfred Weber using yeah. climate as the lever? Franz Timmermans is the first vice president for sustainability. <laughs> I heard him uh, in his conferences uh, how he will build up as commission president <coughs> to take it as a chief task uh, for the commission president to look on the sustainability files. And I think if I look in the environment committee as well in the plenary, how we vote, I think I'm in good company with the Greens, the GUE and uh, a large part of the Liberals. That's normally uh, the, so that's the divisive coalition. line, uh, the votes to get how, we, how we do it in the parliament. And I'm confident that after the elections, uh, this coalition can continue. Thank you. Mark, someone has to pay for the green transition. Who's it going to be? <laughs> well, we all have to take our responsibility. We don't have to pay, I think, if we make the right choices. If we invest in the right technologies and keep an open mind, also also for nuclear, also for biotechnology, for instance, which can make a difference in sustainable food uh, production and in better uh, food production, but also in the energy, again, which we will need massively. And we don't want to jeopardize the development of ourselves and of our neighbors and of other regions in the world. Uh, with the right innovation, and I, I want to end really with an optimistic uh, vote, with the right innovation and the right technology and science development and incentivizing this, we will be able to tackle this problem. Mm -hmm. Investing in nature and in biodiversity, which is key also to tackle the problem. Frederick, you're from Stockholm. They're doing great. Sweden is often top of the class when it comes to investing in the future. Uh, do you think it's Sweden's job and the EU's job to help smaller countries invest in the way that you already have? Yeah, solidarity is also a big part of Swedish tradition and history, but also doing this is like helping the one who's in need for food how to fish instead of just giving the fish. Why Sweden is doing this is because we... We have lower electricity price than most of you guys have. We have business that are competitive to your guys. We have research which is competitive to your guys. We're making 
money of this. I would say we're one of the richest countries in the European Union because we started this transition in the 70s and continued in the 80s and so on and so forth. So we're making money, we're having a good time. I hope you will join us on board on the train. <laughs> <laughs> Marissa, one of the difficulties of this issue is achieving a just transition. Energy poverty is an issue. What's the single action the EU should be taking to make sure that we reduce energy poverty? There's no reason in a region like European Union that we still have energy poverty because we don't lack energy, we don't lack resources, we don't lack the means, so we just lack redistribution and justice. So, of course, we need to take serious, serious measures in this domain. And I think through investment, which I don't consider a cost, but something that we will gain in the future is a way of guaranteeing that the access to energy is something to everyone. Not only the energy, but also the water, which are two of the threatened areas with the climate change. Mm -hmm. So that's crucial, and that's one of the, the ways Thanks. that we have to go. And I'm sorry to say shitty. Uh, no, oh, don't. I said it again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I love it. Thomas, both Manfred Weber and Franz Timmermans need your votes. They need the green votes to become European Commission president. So it means you're ideally placed to trade those votes for promises on climate policy or leadership of key environmental climate committees or task forces. What is the green price going to be for supporting one or the other for Commission President? Well, promises are not going to be enough for sure. We want to see concrete steps to tackle climate change, and we can finance that. I mean, we, can, we have to tax multinational companies just as everyone here in the room is taxed and every a normal company is taxed in the European Union. There's enough money on the market that we can use for the transition. And also, we could reduce military expenditures because you can have the biggest military of the world. How are you going to defend Europe against climate change with the military force, it's not going to work. So I think this is questions that we have to talk about. But we're open to negotiate, but the price is going to be high, uh, high in terms of serving people with what they need to build their future on and not because of where the grains yeah. To all six candidates, thank you very much. That wraps up the first of Politico's great debates here in this EU election season in 2019. Thank you, all of you. You were listening to six candidates who are running in the European Parliament elections in May 2019. Thanks for listening. That's all we've got time for on this episode. Coming up next week, we've got another special episode of The XX Factor, where we're going to look at how women are portrayed in the media in the context of elections and politics. As always, podcasting is a team effort, so I have to thank Wei Dong Lin, Christina Gonzalez, and Andrew Gray, because without them, this episode wouldn't be possible. And remember to subscribe wherever you found this podcast so we can help grow our community and make the podcast bigger and better.